0: The psalmist writes of Exodus 32, in Psalm 106, verses 19 through 23, this is what he writes, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped the cast metal image. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. They forgot God their Savior, who did great things in Egypt, wonderful works in the land of Ham awe-inspiring acts at the Red Sea. So he said he would have destroyed them. If Moses, his chosen one, had not stood before him in the breach to turn his wrath away from destroying them. Paul writes of Israel's experiences in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them were. And then the book of 1 John ends with this admonition. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What is idolatry? Idolatry is putting something or someone else in the place of God. It is the worship of that which is not God. It's living for someone or something else other than God. Idolatry is at the root of every sin. Because sin in its essence is when we tr- choose to give our affections for or to, ourselves to or for, something other than God and his plans and practices. And idolatry is what is front and center In Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 is the story of another fall, if you will. We were in Eden receiving instructions about the building of the tabernacle, but now we are looking at a huge plunge into sin. Israel is out of Egypt, but Egypt is not yet out of Israel. The people have yet to learn that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, their God, is the only true God, and that there is no one like him. They've yet to learn that he will not share his glory with another, that he demands singular devotion. So that's our main idea this morning, is that Yahweh is not like other gods. We're going to approach the text in two parts. We're going to talk about the people and Aaron, and then the Lord and Moses. Let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of allowing us to gather together as your people on another Sunday morning. We thank you that we get to together celebrate the life, death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that we get to do so in community together. Lord, you are good and you change us by your word. Pray that you would use the preaching of your word to lead us into Christ's likeness. Pray that you would use the fellowship that we share here to help shape us more into your image. God, we thank you that each and every part of our service from our songs to our prayers to our listening and even into my preaching that you are honored. Father, help us all to preach the gospel to one another as we play our part in your body. Glorify yourself in this time. Come and be our spirit, Holy Spirit, we ask, that we might understand. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's do a little bit of context here. Israel has been saved out of slavery in Egypt and taken to Mount Sinai where they were married to their God, Yahweh, as his covenant people. All the people together agreed to become God's treasured possession, his holy nation, his kingdom of priests. And they, just, they promised to do so by obeying his word, by keeping his covenant. They said the I wills and the I do's and committed to, and I quote, do and obey everything that the Lord has commanded. Israel's promise to faithfulness was then sealed with blood that was sprinkled upon them and then confirmed with a fellowship meal that they shared before Yahweh. At the conclusion of that same wedding ceremony, After the people had dispersed, the people saw the glory of the Lord overshadowing Mount Sinai. It was described for us as a consuming fire. And they watched Moses ascend the mountain into the glory cloud. They Watched him climb into it. And what was going on is they knew that God was going to write down for Moses copies of the law and the commandment on tablets of stone. During this time, God would also give Moses instructions for how to worship him rightly with the construction of the tabernacle and the establishment of the priesthood. It's in the midst of this lengthy sojourn that Yahweh's new bride becomes impatient. See, Moses delays in coming down the mountain. And the people, consumed with passion, create And whore after another God. This is what we read in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Then Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then he said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Then he made an announcement. There will be a festival tomorrow to the Lord. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and to drink and then got up to play. Uh, That last word, play, there, it's not like we're going to play softball. It has sexual overtones uh, and relates to kind of the the pagan practices of fertility. And so uh, many commentators described this scene as uh, there's all kinds of craziness going on, all right? then that's where we're going to leave it. But why make an idol that was lifeless to worship. Because the heart wants what the heart wants. The Israelites' explicit idolatry has an implicit root. The idol that is seen in the golden calf is birthed from their unseen idol within. Ultimately, the people are after connection and control. Their, their want for connection with God is actually a, a good thing. It's a good desire, but they've managed to twist it and to pervert it so that it becomes a sinful one, right? I, I, Ron, the irony of this whole scene is that God has brought them a real connection with himself and into a real relationship with himself. He is, as they are breaking his covenant, telling Moses how, they can, how he's going to live among the people, how they can worship him with the building of his altar and his palace, how they can enter his courts with praise. The tabernacle is going to be the concrete point of contact between the people and God. It will be how they connect. So We said last week it will be a piece of heaven on earth. God really will be present in the tabernacle. That's what he's getting ready to do, to connect them even more intimately with himself. But the people are Impatient. And so they try to make their own way to God, try to forge their own connection. They try to connect with their Creator on the basis of what they want to believe is true about Him. Right? What Israel does here is despicable. They they basically commit adultery on the honeymoon, right? They've just done this wedding ceremony in Exodus chapter 24. Moses just went up on the mountain. It's been maybe 30-ish, 40 days, maybe a delayed honeymoon. And now they're going after another. They're giving their affections to another. They are representing Yahweh with an idol, which is in direct violation of the second commandment, if you're keeping score. They recognize this bull, as the embodiment of the divinity that had led them out of Egypt. And so they told each other, right? These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, Moses delays in coming back down the mountain with the tablets of God. And so Israel exchanges a real connection to the real God for a fake connection to a fake God. Why? Because they can control the fake. R.C. Sproul comments, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them into judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. The Israelites said they were doing something for God, but it was really for them. By making an image of God, the people repudiated the real God and pledged allegiance to the counterfeit one. Friends, our hearts are the same as Israel's. We, like all people, are made for and long for connection with the God in whose image we've been made. But we fill this desire to connect with the real God with counterfeit ones so that we can control them. We, we exchange the, the real untamable God for one that has been domesticated, one that is made in our image, right? We say something like, uh, I've heard people say, I'm a self-made man, and I worship my creator, right? I think that that's our, our approach to God sometimes, that our God actually looks a whole lot like us, that he could never contradict us. I mean, we've said it many times. I love uh, Tim Keller says, if your God cannot contradict you, you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. Naturally, we all remold God into our image or our culture's image rather than remembering that we are made in his image. How do you try to control God by remaking him after yourself? Israel's whole celebration here uh, to this golden bull actually mimics the scene that we saw in Exodus 24. I mean, they get up early in the morning, they offer sacrifices. It's kind of a um, duplication of the real thing for this fake God. They take some of the truth about God that he's revealed to them, some of these ideas about proper worship, and they, they blend it together with some of their preferences, and ultimately they make a monument to syncretism. The best lies are always mixed with bits of truth. Like the Israelites, our idolatry often imitates orthodoxy. and We need to be careful that we are not employing Jesus' name or God's will as a justification for our own will. And you, you can do things in Jesus' name that are really in your own name. Because idolatry at its root is always about glorifying and gratifying ourselves. I wonder what sacred cows do you cloak in Christian piety and worship under the pretense of Jesus' name? What, what do we do in Jesus' name that's really about making ourselves feel good and warm and fuzzy rather than about the spread of the gospel in God's glory? I wonder, are there some sacred cows here at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church? Things that our church uses Jesus to serve rather than using to serve Jesus. The order is important. We can't just put God's name on our letterhead and then assume that whatever we do has his blessing. We must submit ourselves to his word and his will not our ideas about what we think God is like. He hasn't left that that option to us. We don't get to make him in our own image. He's revealed himself to us in his word and called us to submit, not to remake him. Dr. Merida comments, many today want salvation without dedication. Many people want to be forgiven and to go to heaven, but they want to hold on to the idols of the world. The golden calf is what the people wanted. The calf could not talk. The calf was not feared. The calf could be manipulated for one's own desires. People do not want a holy God who speaks and confronts them. Yahweh is not like other gods. He speaks. He is spoken. And he confronts. He is not man-made. He made man. He does not shape himself after culture. He is completely other than. The living God is holy and he commands our submission to his wonderful authority. And as much as we rail against God's authority as sinners, the funny thing is that it's only when we give ourselves entirely to the will of God that we are most happy and most free. And outside of the bondage of our sin. Still though many of us, like Israel, reject God's beauty and authority. I mean, do you understand how crazy it is for us to even commit just one sin? To reject God's authority just one time during the day? I mean, it's madness. And it was madness for Israel too. Uh, Remember, uh, those who had made this bull are those who were not so long ago, along with the mountain, trembling at God's presence. These are those who marveled at the plagues whose sons were passed over because of the blood of the Lamb, who walked through the Red Sea, had bitter water turned sweet, ate bread from heaven, and drank from a rock. They had seen unbelievable miracles. They had seen the power of God on display. Daily, every time they went to have breakfast, they were picking manna off the ground. Daily they're seeing God's power, and yet they reject Him unbelief only sees what it wants to. Well, Jesus says at the end of the parable, the rich man and Lazarus, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. He's speaking in regards to people that do not believe and obey uh, God's word. He's saying if they don't believe what God has shown them, They're not going to believe even if he does the most amazing thing of all time. Even if somebody raises from the dead, which Jesus, of course, will do. Those stuck in their unbelief will continue to be stuck. See, Israel had been drawn out of slavery to be drawn close to God. They had seen signs and wonders, and yet they did not believe. See, faith is a gracious gift given to God by god we cannot conjure it up in ourselves we can only ask for it non-christian pray for this gift pray that god would give you the gift of faith that you might walk with him that you might encounter his presence christian mean marvel at the grace of god marvel that he has given you faith I mean ask why me and give thanks for it is by grace you have been saved and this nod of yourself so that no one can boast the only one that we can boast in or boast about is jesus who has given us faith who has purchased for us eternal blessings at the loss of his own life marvel at this grace the golden calf was an expression of Israel's love for themselves made in their image instead of God's, and it, it reflected their heart idols of control and connection. They wanted connection with God, but they also wanted a God they could control, and so they made one. But they're, they're not the only ones that we see sinning. There's a, another person we see sinning as an individual in this text, and that person is Aaron. This golden calf, this bull, is also the result of Aaron's heart idol of approval, right? Aaron is supposed to be the leader of the people. I mean, he's going to be the high priest eventually. But he leads the people not into the presence of God, but into sin, right? They, they all come around him. They're like, hey, Moses isn't back yet. Uh, let's make this idol. And he's like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. I mean, that's it's like peer pressured. He wants to be liked. He wants their approval, And so he gathers the material for and fashions this monstrosity. Friends, learn from Aaron. I think think just naturally we all long for the approval of others. We want to be liked. But we must remember as Christians that we have the ultimate approval of the only one who matters. There may be many times in this world that by doing the right thing and following God that you earn frowns and shouts from others. But in those moments, we must remember that we have the smile of the only one who matters. Just as God said to Jesus at his baptism, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, he says to you if you have faith in him. And he is well pleased with obedience to his word. To a shame, Aaron does what is popular instead of what is right. Don't do this resolve to do what is right instead of what is necessarily popular and this is going to earn you hostility but truth does not change jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever following jesus requires carrying a cross look for your approval from him don't serve the idol of the approval of others Endure. Another lesson we learn from this incident is that we must be careful of the leaders we learn from and follow. I think our culture is ripe with false teachers and counterfeit gospels that kind of crouch outside of our doors waiting to devour us. And they're not hard to find. They appear on your TV or greet you with smiles as you enter the bookstore. Guard yourself against false teaching and poor leadership. I think the best way to do this is by studying your Bible and learning from good teachers. Because the better you know the gospel, the better it is to identify the fake, right? Same thing that counterfeiters do, uh, like with money. Not that I know about such things, but I think, I think that you, you try to get the same ink, you try to uh, image all the same stuff if you're doing a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill. You try to make it look exactly right, alike. And, and the way uh, that you get your idea about how your counterfeit is supposed to look is by looking at the real thing. And so, if you're familiar with money, like in a really good way, and you have a counterfeit bill and a real one before you, and you know where like, all the fancy holograms are and stuff, you're going to be able to identify the fake. We can identify false gospels by being familiar with the real gospel. Right? Same way that, uh, what are the people called that do paintings? I, I can't remember not artists, but somebody that identifies a false one from a real one. But if you have two, um, a falsified painting and a real one next to each other, somebody that authenticates the reality of those paintings, though I can't tell the difference between the two with a naked eye, knows what the real thing is supposed to look like in such a way that they can say, this is the real one, this is the fake one. Know the gospel so that you're not taken captive by counterfeit ones or cowardly leaders. Aaron fails miserably as a leader here and he also fails to take responsibility and to repent. He he blames shifts, which is a classic human move, right? Look at verse 21. Then Moses asked Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, Make us a God who will go up before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. It just came out. It's a miracle. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, this is like a child's excuse. Aaron knows that he has fashioned the bull And it didn't just leap out of the fire. But still he attempts to conceal his sin rather than confess it. This is instructive for us. We want to confess our sin rather than concealing it. Love, Proverbs 28, 13 says this, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. when you sin, confess it, repent, and find mercy. Also note that Adam, the tabernacle priest, future tabernacle priest, and he he does what Adam, the first garden priest, did, right? He immediately shifted the blame. Uh, Sin happens in Eden, and God says to Adam, hey, what's up? What, what's going on and Adam says this woman you gave me you know she's a hot mess and she just ruined everything the woman says well it's really the snake's fault and just blame shifting is continued forever and ever amen right that's what Aaron is doing here say Aaron what did you do how have you led the people into sin and Aaron's like well really it's their fault and I just put the gold in calf just kind of came out it's out of my hands really it's it miraculous essentially it's like why are you so mad bro they are brothers Instead of confessing sin, I think people, that's you and and me and us, I think we prefer to make excuses for it. So let me exhort you, don't make lame excuses. The devil made me do it. Take responsibility. Confess and repent of your sin. Now some of you might have noticed noticed that Moses is a little angry here, but he's rightfully angry. Moses' anger at Aaron and the people in this situation reflects God's own anger. Look at verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, Love that. <laughs> it's like when I get mad at my kids. Like, You know, Chelsea, your son, <laughs> The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, you brought up from the land of Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people. And they are indeed a stiff-necked people. All that means, the stiff-necked people thing, is that they refuse to bow their heads to God and worship. Like you would put a yoke over an animal and you would drive it whichever way you wanted. If it didn't go the way you wanted or it was rebellious, it had a stiff neck. Anyhow, they're they're a stiff-necked people. They're rebellious. Verse 10, Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. I gotta tell y'all, if I'm Moses at this point, I'm like, that sounds awesome, right? Like, let's get rid of these fools. Me and you will start over. You're awesome, I'm all right, let's let's get going. This isn't how Moses plays it out, though. And it's because he's better than me, (laughs) and because he's more concerned about God's glory and God's reputation than his own. And so he'll pray. God could have wiped out all of the people with the blink of an eye or the flick of his finger. But instead, he tells Moses his intent as a rhetorical way of saying to Moses, here is what I will do unless you intervene. You understand what I'm saying? Like, God could have, if he really wanted, if that was his intent to just carry that out, he would have just been, they're gone. But instead, he's inviting Moses to intercede for the people. Douglas Stewart comments, for God to announce to a prophet, Moses being the paradigm for all future prophets, his intention to do something is an invitation to intercession. I think a great example of this is the book of Jonah. Jonah is to go and pronounce judgment on Nineveh, but he doesn't want to go. After a unfortunate series of events, he's eventually compelled to go, and he he still doesn't want to, but he preaches this message. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Something like that. But the reason he doesn't want to go is because he knows this is an invitation to repentance for the people of Nineveh. And he doesn't like Nineveh. He wants God to destroy the people there. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that he goes and preaches and the people of Nineveh repent. And God doesn't destroy the city. Likewise, God is inviting Moses to intercede for the people. It's an opportunity for Um, Moses to to stand in the breach, as the psalm puts it, and save the people from destruction. Uh, But by way of comparison, consider the way a, a frustrated parent might try to compel a child to pick up their toys. Go ahead, leave your toys on the floor, the parent might say. It's okay, I'll clean them up for you, just as soon as I get the trash can. Is the parent serious? Will the toys be thrown away? Yes. But no child is going to wait to find out, which is exactly the point. The parent is trying to get the child to take responsibility for the toys, as it were, to save them. God is doing the same thing with his prophet. He used the threat of judgment to rouse Moses to make intercession. We're not to think of Moses as altering God's purpose towards Israel by this prayer but is carrying it out. Moses was never more like God than in such moments. For in these moments, he shared God's own mind and loving purpose. You see, God is brilliant. And he, in his perfect wisdom, had determined to show his mercy to Israel in response to Moses' prayer. Prayer matters a great deal. It Changes things from our perspective. Prayer is a means by which God has determined He will accomplish His purposes. You say that there are things that God has determined that He will accomplish through your prayers. What might God want to do through your prayers? Who might He want to bring to salvation through your prayers? How might he want to glorify himself through your prayers? Never underestimate what God might want to do with your prayer. Pray for great things and expect them. This is exactly what Moses does. He appeals to God's power, God's reputation, and God's promise. Look at verse 11. But Moses interceded with the Lord his God. Lord! Why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with your great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off of the face of the earth? Turn from your great anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by your very self to declare, and you declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. I love that Moses is finally getting it. Like, it, it, he's almost echoing back to God the very things God said to Moses way back when he called him in Exodus uh, ver, what, chapter 3 through the end of chapter 4. Moses is now repeating God's words back to him. Verse 14 So the Lord relented concerning this disaster. He said, Let me try that again. So the Lord relented concerning this disaster he said he would bring on his people. Note that the text says God relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened, which is not the same as saying that God agreed to do nothing, right? What he threatened to do was destroy Israel. What he ends up doing is punishing them with a plague, which is in verse 35 and is mysterious. We don't know what it was, how long it lasted, or if anyone died. It's a lesser punishment by um, by any measure, but it is by no means an acquittal. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, it's not the sound of a victory cry, and not the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the of the mountain. Moses' action here is not sinful. The Bible never calls it sinful. Moses' anger reflects the Lord's own anger, and his destroying of the tablets is a a picture of what Israel has done to the covenant that was inscribed on them, right? They have broken relationship with God. They deserve to be destroyed. If you remember uh, back in chapter 24, the blood is on them, and, and they're going to die if they don't keep the covenant. But God is gracious. They're not going to be destroyed, but judgment is going to be meted out, as seen by what Moses does in the next verse, verse 20. Then Moses took the calf they'd made, burned it up, and ground it to powder. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. And so Moses makes the people drink the original Goldschlager, right? So, so most of us are Baptists, and maybe I'll explain that to you later if you don't get it. Uh, it's, it's protein powder. He's mixing it up with the water. They've got to drink it. What is he doing here? Well, he's completely decimating this idol so that they can't remake it, for one thing. But secondarily, by forcing the people to drink this water, will ultimately show them what the bull is as it passes through their system. Moses isn't done, though, verse 25. Moses saw that the people were out of control. For Aaron had let them get out of control, resulting in weakness before their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance. And each of you kill his brother, his friend. And his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. That's about 0.5% of the population. Afterward, Moses said, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord since each man went out against his son and brother. Therefore, you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. What this scene shows us is that sin is deathly serious. Tim Chester writes, Temptation presents sin as attractive and harmless. But in reality, sin looks like 3,000 rotting corpses. Death is sin made visible. And it is death all the people deserve. But God has offered an opportunity to repentance, or for repentance, right? Whoever is for the Lord was able to gather around Moses. We see that only the Levites respond. And then, having turned from their sin, they carry out God's justice. Stuart is helpful for our understanding here. He writes this. What the Levites were to do was to go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, which means carefully and systematically approaching everyone and finding out whether they intend to return to Yahweh abandoning their idolatry or not those found to be committed to idolatry must be killed those sorry for being caught up in it but now actively repenting must be spared Riken agrees saying when god told them to kill their brothers and neighbors the point was not that each man had to kill his closest friends but that whoever was guilty had to be punished One of the first things this text teaches us is that God's claim on us is stronger even than the claims of family and friends. This truth is reiterated by Jesus in in his own words in Matthew 10. He says this, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is not your, like, coffee mug Christmas card Bible verse, right? This doesn't mean that we should hate people in our families. But it does mean that whether they are believers or not, our love for them must submit to our higher love for God. I wonder, how do the loves of your life line up? Where does your ultimate loyalty lie? The point here is that God must be the one who has our hearts, the one who gives our lives meaning and brings our souls satisfaction. Our love for God and his kingdom must take precedence over every other human relationship. Christ followers must be willing to deny their will and embrace God's. We also learn that God takes holiness seriously and that he wants his people to look like his people, right? Israel is supposed to be the holy nation, a kingdom of priests. They're supposed to be a light unto the darkness of the nations. But at this point, they are undiscernible from the nations. They look just as dark. This is why those whom refuse to repent are killed. They're cut off from Israel because God will not allow his reputation to be sullied or his glory to be obscured. Today, when the people of God live in unrepentant sin, we don't take swords to them and physically kill them, though that might result in people sinning less, I don't know. But we do cut them off from fellowship through church discipline. Those who continue in unrepentant sin prove that they are not for the Lord but for themselves. Consequently, if a church member refuses to turn from their sin to the Lord, the church discipline process ends with them being, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, put away from among the church. We do this not because we are mean, but because Jesus has charged his church with proclaiming the gospel and protecting his name. He will not stand being misrepresented The church is responsible for being a display of God's glory, of being a light unto the world. We mustn't obscure that light by allowing into our midst those who claim the name of Christ but have made him in the image of themselves. In Christ, the church is what Israel failed to be. According to 1 Peter 2, the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, tasked with proclaiming God's excellencies in the world. Godliness matters because God's reputation matters. And as he is holy, so too must his people be holy. Our holiness does not merit us salvation, but comes in response to salvation. We see how God has loved us and lavished us with his grace, and all we can do in gratitude is to give him our whole lives and submit ourselves to his will. Yahweh is not like other gods. He will not let evil go unpunished. Moses understands this. He understands that though 3,000 had fallen, Because of their refusal to repent, that it was a limited judgment. And that even those who had repented still needed forgiveness. And so he climbs the mountain to make atonement. Look at verse 30. The following day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out from the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, I will erase or blot out whoever has sinned against me from my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. Moses understood the nature of salvation. When people sin, they need a substitute. And this story makes clear that, that we need a Savior. We need somebody to stand in the breach and intercede for us. And It kind of builds to this climactic finish wherein uh, the mediator will give his life for the people. But it doesn't work out that way, right? God says, or Moses says to God, take me, let them live. And God says no. Because Moses could not die for the people since he himself was a sinner. God is willing to let one person die in the place of many. But the only sacrifice he can accept is a perfect one. Moses cannot be blotted out for the people because he deserves to be blotted out with the people. Moses climbed the mountain into God's presence but kept his life because he was an unacceptable sacrifice. And this attempt to offer himself in the place of the people points us to our true mediator, the true and better Moses. Years later, Jesus Christ, like Moses, climbed a mountain in order to make atonement for his people. But unlike Moses, he succeeded. He died. Jesus Christ was blotted out for you. His name was blotted out so that your name could be written in. He was held accountable for the sin of all who trust in him. Unlike the powerless idol that Moses decimated never to return again. Jesus could not be destroyed. Jesus had real power. And Jesus also rose from the dead. He rose to prove his person, his power. He rose to prove that he can give life to all who put their faith in him. He didn't stay dead so that we wouldn't have to stay dead in our sins so that we could be together alive with him. I wonder, will you answer the call to repentance and like the Levites, declare yourself for the Lord by forsaking your idols and following Jesus? Whether the first time or the 101st time. God has made a way for us to connect with him through the cross of Christ, but it requires giving up control. It requires giving up trying to control him and giving up control of our lives to him. Relationship with God requires exchanging submission to ourselves and gods made in our own image, and it requires submitting to him as those who have been made in his image. Friends, Jesus is not like other gods. He loves you, gave himself for you, and he alone can satisfy you. Let's pray together, dear Heavenly Father. We thank you that you have called us together, and revealed to us your purpose in this divine drama of history. We thank you that you have plotted our lives along the, uh, in Christ. Thank you that you've given us life, called us to yourself. Lord, your glory and majesty is suffocating wonderfully so. Pray that you would overwhelm us once more with your love for us and a desire to love others as you have loved us. We thank you that you are good. Pray that you would help us to learn from Israel's example. Father, we know that we become like what we worship. And when we worship the empty things of this world, we remain empty. But when we worship you, we get to be made whole. Lord, we thank you for being our peace, for being our satisfaction. and We give you all the honor and glory and praise. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.